I'm Alan Thorpe. And I'm David Rogers, and together we host The WeatherPod. In each episode, we invite a leading expert to help investigate how public, private and academic sectors can work together to produce weather information of value to business and society. Timely, accurate and focused weather information and related services have enormous value across all areas of human activity. It can increase the efficiency and profitability of business, help save lives and improve safety on land, at sea and in the air, and predict the spread of life-threatening diseases. Now, as climate change increases the frequency and impact of extreme weather events, weather information is crucial to build social and economic resilience. Societies are increasingly challenged by the need to cope with complex, interconnected threats. Either a single hazard leads to a cascade of additional perils, often more significant than the primary one, or multiple independent hazards occur simultaneously. In each case, lack of planning and early preparation leads to the realisation of major adverse impacts on people and their livelihoods. Economic development may falter, and political instability becomes an added risk. Climate change compounds existing threats and poses new ones. Many of these are outside the bounds of experience, requiring us to harness new knowledge and take a more holistic view of the immediate and future risks facing us. The problem affects all of society, and a whole-of-society approach is needed. This is immensely challenging. Societal compacts and partnerships among more than a few groups of stakeholders are rarely sustained, and we proceed with compartmentalised approaches where each sector attempts to solve its own problems with little or no insight into how sectoral interdependencies compound and exacerbate risks. Two key concepts have emerged in the past decade as the means to improve people's ability to handle different types of hazards, anticipatory action and impact-based forecasting. Anticipatory action is a set of actions people can take to prevent harm to themselves and others before acute impacts are felt. Impact-based forecasts focus on what the hazard will do, rather than what the hazard will be. In practice, anticipatory action and impact-based forecasts are complementary. Neither is effective without the other. Good forecast, but shame about the outcome, is a repeated mantra. So for those impacts of hazards for which anticipatory action driven largely or in part by weather forecasts would make a difference, what isn't being done right? In today's special weather pod debate, Alan and I have invited Irene Ameron, Director of Anticipatory Action at the Red Cross Red Crescent Climate Centre, Paul Davies, Met Office Principal Fellow and Chief Meteorologist, and Terence Fernando, Director of the Think Lab at the University of Salford, to debate... How do we improve outcomes for everyone at risk from the impact of hydrometeorological hazards? Welcome to the WeatherPod. Irene, you're an expert in disaster risk management and were disaster risk manager at the Ugandan Red Cross Society before joining the Red Cross Red Crescent uh, Climate Centre as Director of Anticipatory Action. You've been a strong advocate of the value of impact-based forecasting for weather and climate service delivery. Perhaps um, you could start by elaborating IFRC's operational framework for anticipatory action. Good morning, David, and uh, thank you for having me. 
Before I dive into the operational framework on special action, I would like to take us a step back in terms of the journey that the Red Cross has had on this unspecialty uh, action. So we started from 2014, and along the way, we've had some um, documents that speak to this. We have the IFRC 2021-2025 uh, work plan and budget, and then we have the strategy, IFRC strategy 2030. And of course, we've also had uh, growing initiatives broadly within the Red Cross and beyond. Um, and as of now, we have around 70 initiatives around anticipatory action. And with that, we've grown from pilot to scaling up. And so this is where the operational framework for anticipatory action comes in. Its ambition is to operationalize the scaling up of anticipatory action. And basically, we have a few targets that we are looking at. And one of them is that we want to scale up anticipatory action in 80 countries by the year mm. 2025. And with this, we would like to see that anticipatory action is going beyond the usual hazards, uh, the first, uh, first occurring hazards, and now also moving towards the slow and invisible hazards. For example, the drought and heat. And then also we want to see that we are covering more. Then we want to ensure that every year we are able to support or target or engage 4.3 million people on an annual basis through our operational framework. Then also we want to see that we've trained over 4,000 volunteers and staff of the Red Cross on Anspectory Action. And then of mm -hmm. course, finally, we want to build strong partnerships around Anspectory Action. So that is what our focus and target for the operational framework is all about. Well, that's really impressive. <laughs> Thanks, Irene. Paul, um, you focus on innovation and use of new scientific, technological and operational techniques to deliver benefits to a wide range of Met Office's customers. You created the UK, uh, UK's Natural Hazard Partnership, <clears throat> which brings together multiple agencies, government departments and the Cabinet Office to support an integrated approach coping with hazards. You also led the WMO Impact task team that authorized, authored um, authored guidelines on multiple hazard impact-based warnings. I'd like to start by asking you to outline briefly impact-based forecasting and um, the importance of, and particularly the importance of partnerships. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Yeah, morning. Um, impact-based forecasting is not about what the weather will be, but what the weather will do. So, and to be honest with you, it echoes back to from a, some frustration in the meteorological community. Why was it when we were pushing out warnings of 70 millimeters of rain that no one understands what to do about it? <clears throat> you know, we used to kick these warnings over the fence as hope someone will grab it and take some action, but it never did. And so impact-based forecasting essentially is trying to address that particular problem. And it's around collaboration and partnership because if you can't engage or partner with other people to describe <clears throat> what you're trying to express in the meteorological community, then what's the point? If no one's going to take an action, why invest in huge amounts in science and technology? That's the heart of impact-based forecasting. Initially, we did with the hydrometeorological hydro community, the hydrology community for flooding. Now it's expanded to all multiple hazards. And now we're moving towards policy, moving towards climate resilience and adaptation. And that partnership, as you go through that journey, grows and grows and grows. And so that's the natural hazards partnership. It's a partnership that encompasses government bodies, but also private agencies and the private community as well to better inform, communicate to society and protect against natural hazards and the disasters. That's the head of impact-based forecasting. Yeah, thanks. thanks, Paul. Terence, <clears throat> you, you lead the Think Lab at the University of Salford in, in the UK, which focuses on envisioning uh, digital futures, applying gaming technology, big data tools and advanced visualization techniques 
to help your partners understand future scenarios and plan their solutions accordingly. You've specialized in resilient cities, smart cities, collaborative engineering, and virtual training environments, including uh, space mission planning for Mars. I'd like to start by outlining something a bit closer to home in terms of how digital tools aid collaboration and decision making. Thank you, David. Uh, so I will answer your question within the context of cities because collaboration is a quite a broad uh, subject. As you know, cities are incredibly complex systems with numerous subsystems that interact with each other in intricate ways. So these subsystems include transportation, housing, energy, water and healthcare, and so on. So each subsystem has its own set of challenges, goals and stakeholders, and which are often interlinked with the other subsystems. For example, if you take transportation, it is closely linked to land use patterns, uh, house values and air quality and so on. Therefore, it is important to model such interaction to understand the behavior of a city as a whole. So however, the modeling of such interaction among various subsystems require collaboration, approach involving multiple stakeholders and so on. So we feel that digital technology can play a vital role in supporting such collaboration, helping the stakeholders to externalize these uh, complex uh, interactions between subsystems. Uh, due to the recent advances in modeling, simulation, visualization, and computing power, etc., we can now develop digital platforms that can be used by stakeholders to share data from their subsystems and visualize complex interaction among uh, city subsystems. This allows stakeholders to understand how various subsystems are interconnected and collaborate in uh, making better decisions for creating sustainable and uh, resilient environment. I would say such uh, collective understanding facilitated by digital technology is important for us to calculate the impact of a hazard on urban environment as well as implement anticipatory actions. Thanks, Terence. So over to you, Alan. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Thanks, David. Um, it's, I think it's been clear from the introductions that considerable progress has been made in relating anticipatory action, impact-based forecasting and early warning. But I guess still too many hazards become damage, damages that result from acts of human emission and commission rather than because of a natural process. And that's more or less a quote from Lord Stern from the World Bank report, Natural Hazards, Unnatural Disasters. So in our discussion, we want to explore really new avenues that could profoundly improve our ability to cope with current and future hazards, as well as providing economic opportunities. I wanted just to cover first um, issues related to access to data and information. So in a sense, it's looking at the question as follows. How do we ensure that all the information that is necessary to guide effective decision-making and action-orientated systems, how can we ensure that information is brought together and made available? That, that information in turn needs to cover many factors involved in a given hazard, as well as be in a usable form to assess risk and uncertainty. So this question is really about access to data and information. So I wonder, perhaps Irene, if you would like to comment on that. Sure, so uh, thanks a lot, um, Alan, on this. 
in terms of how we can ensure that this information is relevant for decision making um my suggestions and recommendations would be that one we need to build and strengthen partnership and coordination with the relevant partners including communities that need to use this information in most cases you know we are having a siloed approach that the people who develop this information are seated on one side uh, of the coin and then the ones who need to use it are seated on the other and so there is that gap in terms of the availability of information and the use of information and so for us to ensure that this information is useful and it is it's useful for those that need that need it we need to make sure that we have relevant partnerships we have people who are able to contribute to this information and also design the kind of information that they need so for me i would sum it up in terms of build and strengthen partnerships and coordination for all people relevant including the communities okay that's interesting so you emphasize the partnership aspect so i wondered terence about the in a sense the more digital aspects the you know different sorts of information from different communities and different parts of society have to come together but they're often in very different formats and and structures so how, how does how do we bring it together and make it accessible in a, in a sense so that you know a, a decision maker can really make uh, an interpretation of the data yeah thanks alan uh, i i kind of like uh, lord uh, stern's uh, quote natural hazard uh, unnatural disasters and we all know that disaster happens when the hazard meets vulnerability so therefore in order to establish a true picture of the local vulnerability against a given hazard we need to combine a range of information in a structured manner. This information needs to capture all the exposure data, vulnerability data, as well as simulated hazard information, so that we can pre-calculate potential risk within a particular local environment. So this information should be very broad. It should cover physical, social, and environmental aspects. And for example, that we need to collect information on critical infrastructure, such as electrical power distribution networks, telecommunication networks, critical service facilities such as hospitals and schools, building types like commercial buildings and residential buildings, hazard sites, for example, such as hazard disposable sites and chemical sites. At the same time, we need to make sure that there are social information such as population density, people with mobility and health care needs, etc., and, and so on. So that means we need to think about you know, collecting all this very rich set of information to build that understanding. This information should contain their location as well as potential vulnerability data. For example, uh, if it is a hospice, for example, we need to capture information about the mobility and healthcare need of the old people who are living in the hospice in order to evacuate them during a disaster. Unfortunately, this is not enough since uh, systems, uh, sorry, cities are very complex. So therefore, we need to consider cities as complex systems uh, and so on. So failure of one node in one infrastructure subsystem can propagate to another uh, subsystems. So therefore, we need to make sure that in our information system, these inter interdependencies are captured there as well. Uh, so therefore, we, are, we need to capture not just the information, uh, all this range of interdependence, interdependency that exists in urban environment. So we need to capture this information in a secure digital platform because some of these informations are very uh, can reveal lots of security data uh, relevant to a particular country and so on, and make sure that it's available for all the stakeholders to make informed decisions to support anticipated reactions, impact-based forecasting, and, and also for making sure that we can use that information to build community resilience. 
again very very interesting it, it you really described there a huge range of of uh data <coughs> excuse me data and information that we need paul i guess from the if you like the hydrometeorological example that you've you've had a lot of interaction with how do you find this this aspect of bringing together disparate data very difficult <laughs> it's not easy and uh, there's a coin there's a term that's been coined um, drowning in data thirsty for information and it's having the right data in the right format the right interoperability avoiding that sort of protection aspect of this is my data you can't have it unless you pay for it mm-hmm. there's multiple issues that goes with that I, I think it goes back to the partnership and the people side of things here so i've seen there's a lot of data available but it's the wrong type of data shockingly so in my community meteorological community where there's access to data of meters resolution for climate. And me and you know, Alan, that's impossible to achieve at this stage. So having the ability to say what is good and what is not good, mm. and having that body of scrutinizing and that regulatory aspect of saying, this is good quality data that can be used in this way, perhaps you need to consider other approaches for this other type of data, I think is quite critical. And I, I cite my example with the disaster risk community about, about, about better understanding the impact of hazards on society, the cost loss, and being able to share that data in such a way that it's interoperable and usable. And I think that is an example of the importance of partnership beyond the meteorological community. So it's down to people again in partnerships. I think, I think you've, you've all mentioned how critical it is for, for people to, to work together and uh, partnership, and, and I guess well, Paul, for example, you mentioned earlier about the Natural Hazards Partnership and you're sitting at the moment, the wonderful sign before before you, behind you, about the Hazard Centre. Terence, you talked about a collaborative platform that you're developing and Irene, also about the role of national societies like the Red Cross. So that these, these um, organisational structures exist, but um, how do we actually engage all of the stakeholders. I mean, in a sense, we've got to bring the whole of society together uh, to approach early warning and anticipatory action. So there's a there's work to do to encourage all the stakeholders that are relevant to come to come together. So again, if I could start with you, Irene, how how have you found um, this this bringing together of stakeholders in your in your domain? It's been a very challenging process, very exhausting and quite sometimes resource uh, resource intensive because you're having a variety of uh, stakeholders with different incentives, different ma- uh, motivations and different mandates. And yet you need all of them to be able to come to the table for the common good. So um, one, in spite of the challenges around it, I think it is a very feasible. Uh, it is a very feasible effort. So I'll give an example of uh, Uganda. What happens is, is we do have an, uh, a national DRR platform that is hosted by the office of the prime minister, and uh, this platform this platform is usually uh, very active. You know, during disaster times. And once there are no disasters, you know, it's on a it's it's on a slip mode. And so what the Red Cross has done is to tap into this existing structure to be able to introduce the the conversation around anticipatory action. And, you know, challenging uh, stakeholders, we don't have to wait when we're already experiencing the impacts, but we can do something around uh, 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 before they before these impacts are felt. 
And so there's been a technical working group that has been set up in Uganda, again, led by the Office of the Prime Minister, where some of the organizations uh, are, are active and we discuss in terms of how do we scale up this whole um, uh, initiative around anticipatory action. But with it also comes its own challenges. We've had different um, uh, changes within going on within uh, uh, government institutions as well. And so the persons who've been engaging these conversations keep changing, even within organizations. So sometimes you seem to get back to, as you move forward, you again move two steps behind because you're having different faces, you're having different uh, uh, people joining. And now we are discussing about, you know, institutionalizing this participation, such that even if Irene does not show up, but somebody from the Red Cross shows up, they can still pick up the conversation. And so we don't have to tie somebody's participation to just an individual, uh, engagement so we are making progress in this and uh through this we believe that you know the the, the approach around anticipatory action will grow we will hopefully have then our policies being revised to be able to match up to the current growing innovations and need around anticipatory action and also we are challenging ourselves to take this conversation to the communities where the action needs to happen Okay, that, that's, that's a good example from Uganda. I, I wondered, Paul, from a, a European perspective, wh when, when your what your experience is with bringing together key stakeholders, including government, in an anticipatory way, in other words, before um, actually the impacts have started, is that something, do you think, that, that policymakers, governments and, and other decision makers are used to thinking about? Or that, are they willing to come together in advance of of uh, of the event, if you like. So that's a bit of a loaded question there, Alan. I, I think the, the answer is that the bit slow, right? There there are some okay. examples where there's more we can do in advance. Um, I just like to cite the trust aspect of it and the trust formula, if I can. So the trust formula equals to: Are you reliable? Are you credible? Plus, are you empathetic? And the key one is all divided by self-interest. So if you go into a partnership it's all, and you go in there, it's about me or it's about my organization, my profession, the partnership will not work. It has to go in there with that self-interest really, really low and you're doing it for the best good for society, whether it's policy, legislation, science and technology pull through, it all has to come about reducing that score, that self-interest bit down. And natural hazards partnership was in instance how that was achieved. It wasn't about the Met Office. It wasn't about Ordnance Survey. It wasn't about another department. The key, key body that enabled that was the Cabinet Office. Because the Cabinet Office was an honest broker. They went into it as sponsors. And we were able to pull the partnership together around that. If I didn't have the Cabinet Office, then I wouldn't have a partnership. And it echoes what Irene said about you know, that, that resilience of partnerships, how you would sustain that. And that comes again, I think, if we build a trust formula around that. Okay, Terence, did you want to come in, or should we should we move on? Uh, I could say a few words if you like. Yeah, carry on. So anyway, I, th I think as uh, Irene was explaining, the whole of society approach is quite challenging. It's very difficult to implement, and uh, the whole of society approach implies transforming so many different things, like current government structures to introducing democratic and participatory approach to building resilience, involving a range of uh, stakeholders, such as government organization, NGOs, private organization, and community members, and so on. 
However, when you think about the current policies and the legislation and government structures, act as barriers for any implementation of this concept of whole society. Therefore, I believe we need to think about different forms of engagement to gradually break down these barriers. So for example, we need to make sure that we engage the politicians and policymakers to change the current policies that promotes silo-based working culture to introduce much more uh, multi-agency collaboration kind of processes and so on. These uh, new policies should uh, ideally introduce network governance structures where we bring and support facil and facilitate horizontal collaboration across multiple agencies. In parallel, we also need to think about how do we enhance community engagement approaches to make the uh, communities as uh, active participants in the decision-making process. Our research has shown that there are many barriers to community engagement, such as uh, the distrust that exists between the community and the practitioners, lack of community capacity to engage with the decision makers, power-centric organization culture that uh, doesn't really engage with the community, and also ill-defined community engagement processes without clear aims and objectives and so on. So therefore, we need to establish well-supported citizen committees, communities to support the engagement of the committee as active participants in the decision-making process. So I believe that uh, NGOs can play a wider role as experienced and trusted partners in bringing the community and supporting community engagement. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. Uh, thanks, Alan. <clears throat> I think one one area that we when we've looked, you know, rewind a little bit, a decade or so, we've looked at the way we use information, and it's been rather ad hoc. You know, I, somebody, th as I think Paul alluded to it when we before impact-based forecasting, we're just sort of passing on information, and we're we're not we're not curating it in any significant way. And we've lacked until quite recently the tools to really turn our innovations into digital innovation. And I'd like to start by asking. In Terence, how how can we make better use of digital technology to drive this transformation process? Uh, thanks, Davis. Uh, I, th I think uh, we all can see the potential of digital technology for supporting anticipated actions and impact-based impact early warnings and, uh, and other things. However, the reality on the ground is very different. We already spoke about the barriers for implementation and so on. But however, the, the challenge is to create the conditions for transformation. But this requires, as we discussed before, changes in the policy, multi-agency collaboration, changes to collaboration governance structures, and so on. Unfortunately, it will take a long time to make those changes. So therefore, we need to think about new mechanisms that we can introduce to really accelerate the implementation of these challenges by introducing concepts like living labs. I consider living lab as a more socio-technical solution rather than a technical solution itself. So the Living Lab uh, concept offers a positive open innovation and learning environment for stakeholders, such as government organizations, communities, and scientists to come together to build a common understanding of the local risks risk and co-create solutions to solve them. So the key elements of uh, Living Labs are the co-creation of solutions with the stakeholders and the community, piloting them on uh, live projects, and refining those solutions with the stakeholders to make sure they're happy with the outcomes. I, I believe that the co-creation and co-validation activities allow the participants to get a common understanding as well as buy into the concept of this new solution. 
So my suggestion is to not just use technology as a way of transforming the current practices, but think about introducing socio-technical interventions such as living lab as a way of really energizing the kind of this process of transformation. And thanks, thanks, Dennis. Irene, you 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 mentioned really this at, at the beginning, the from from the point of view that you really need to have those who are the ultimate beneficiaries fully engaged in in the process. <clears throat> Do you see ways that technology can be used more effectively that really enhance the enhances the role of the ultimate beneficiary, the person who is at risk, who needs to mitigate those risks for themselves? to a large extent? Definitely, technology has um, very strong opportunities to be able to facilitate the transfer of information in real time. And uh, again, allow me to use uh, Uganda as an example that uh, we do quite have a good coverage of cell phone, uh, 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 cell phone coverage in Uganda. And so people are able to access uh, information, real-time information that is needed. And then also, you know, communities can inform the Red Cross in terms of uh, either early warning or confirming disasters that are happening. But the challenge actually comes to access to these uh, uh, services. We have some, uh, uh, in Uganda, again, we have some of the high um, internet rates in the region. And so the persons who would need to be able to access this digitized information this technology may not be able to access it because of the prohibitive cost. And I like what Terence said, you know, how can we get alternatives that is encompassing? How can we take living labs to the people that, uh, that, that need to use it? So while the opportunity to tap into technology is available and is quite high, we also need to look at access to it from the person that needs to use it. And there are for one, of course, that would be beyond um, beyond the mandate of the people in this conversation, you know, how can a very conducive environment be provided so that people are able to tap into the potential and access information in real time to be able to make the decisions that need to be made. In the meantime, while we are waiting for that re realization of uh, accessibility to all, uh, how then can we utilize what is available? For example, how can we tap into community structures to be able to ensure that you know information can be passed on from one person from one region to another so that they are able to take timely, uh, timely conversations? Thanks, Irene. <clears throat> Paul, I was in thinking about the way the technology works. So we, we have a flow of information to the community and now we have a flow of information from the community back. How do you see this really changing the way the forecasting process should work? I mean, this is a co, we talk about co-production, co-design. How are we really going to properly embed the user, the beneficiary in the design and the co-production of the information and, and the, the necessary feedbacks that have to occur in the system? What a good question, David. What a good question. Um, I just echo what everybody's been talking about, transdisciplinary. And I, and I think that's the heart of, of this. This is like going beyond your own niche profession and your knowledge of what you think the community is. And I think that's something which I would, I would encourage. And, and also this discoverability piece as well, right? You know, who do you go to? Um, what is the right avenue of that flow of information? How do we leverage that? I think that's, that's fundamentally key as well. The other thing I would also suggest is I, we've been using um, business change models like the ADCAR model, ProSci ADCAR model. 
So there is a, a we actually mentioned it in our impact guidelines document, David, in, in chapter five, where you can use it as a vehicle by which you can start forming a partnership for that flow of information multiple ways. It's not just two, it's, it's a multiple way use of, of information. Um, and I keep using the word information, not data. It's the, having the right stuff to make that action. But it has to be that transdisciplinary. But the question would be, how do we scale it up? You know, how do we make something sustainable and scalable that everybody can engage? And I think we haven't got that yet. And that's something which I would be interested mm -hmm. to know what the, what the participants in this call would think of how do we make it scalable? I think it's interesting. I, I, reflecting on what you've all said, I, I was thinking about an experience that um, we had in the few years ago now with uh, Hurricane in the United States, Hurricane Sandy, which affected New York. Um, and one of the ways that information actually uh, got communicated around um, those that were going to be affected by the, the inundation, the flooding uh, from, from the, the surge um, that resulted from the hurricane was that people communicated with each other via Twitter to say what was happening exactly where they were and so that other people could avoid that re that street or that neighbourhood. And so actually, in a, in a way, in that example, which I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure it's scalable or transferable, but the community kind of took over the transmission of information. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting model in a social media era of how the end user actually needs to get involved and how we're going to have to integrate that somehow into the way that we, we think about this. I wanted just to, to move on. Um, we, I think we've all talked about, um, I think Paul particularly just, re, just in the last answer about multidisciplinary. We've got various domain specialists that work in their own areas to characterise uh, the hazard and, and the vulnerability even. And they don't, they, they know a lot about what they know about, but perhaps they don't focus so much on, on what the impacts on people of that hazard are. And Paul, I think you mentioned earlier about essentially the, the sort of build it and they will use it syndrome. You know, because we built it, automatically people need to use it. I just want to really hammer home this point, but, but perhaps you could start, Paul, by saying, how could we overcome this, um, this, this sort of tendency for building things that don't necessarily fit with what, what is needed um, in anticipatory action? Yeah, thanks, Alan. Um, I, think, I think that's been, in my profession, this, where we will build it, people will use it, is, is endemic. It's something which I think everybody who's in this multi-partnership piece for protecting life and property all come in it with a passion. They come up with a passion that they think they can solve the problem themselves. And I think it's breaking that model down, that fact that you're a small cog in a, in a, in a bigger picture here. And, and so I would say that in terms of how we're going to break that, we build it, they use it. I think we have to start, as Terence and Irene already said, with the community first and listen and understand what is not so much like what is your requirement, but how we work together as a, as a, as a partnership to, for, for, for them and for us to be empowered to protect ourselves. It's a bit of a woolly answer, Alan, because it is a difficult one. But I think the more we can break away from our um, siloed and actually get out there and engage better, 
until we do that, I always felt that we're going to have that blocker there. What What do you feel, Irene, about this breaking down of silos? <laughs> I think that's the song we've been singing for, you know, for a while, that we cannot have the scale up that we desire as long as we are running solo uh, in our own direction. So definitely, if we are to have... Um, if we had to move from build it and they use it to build it together and we use it together, then we need to break we need to break those walls. Uh, just a, uh, a few days ago, we had an interesting uh, feedback from one of the communities in Western Uganda, where some of the uh, river censoring equipment had been vandalized. And the feedback from the communities was, oh, these things are spying on us. You know, and so it speaks to the issue of trust that Paul spoke about. So if we want to make sure that what we build together is used together, then we have to be able to address the aspect. We need to build trust. And the way we build trust is by doing things together. And so for us to be able to move, I think it is important, again, reiterating what Paul said, we need to do this together. Because by the time we come as scientists and say, Tara, here is, you know, uh, 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 here is what you need to do, we need to appreciate and understand what was being used before the scientists arrived, what was working before, you know, whatever innovation we are bringing uh, uh, arrived. So it is important that we get to have that work backwards together with the communities and others that need to use it, understand what was working, what do we need to build on so that we are able to scale this up. Of course, now we're talking about impact-based impact forecasting. The other bit of the coin is how do we integrate uh, indigenous knowledge into these conversations for elders to be able to you know, be the disseminators of this because we've also realized that having elders in any African setting, they are a very strong channel for dissemination. So until they see their feedback into what we are building, we are not going to be able to utilize whatever systems we are building together. So we get back to the mantra, we build this together so that it can be usable. So, so I guess, Irene, you're, you're saying that in different, in different societies, different countries, different cultures, the trusted voice can, can vary. It, sometimes it, it might be the government. In other countries, it definitely wouldn't be the government. Sometimes it's, it's the elder members of society who are trusted. In others, it might be actually the opposite. It might be the younger members. So it, it's an interesting perspective that one size doesn't fit all effectively in that. Terence, one, one thing that to pick up on this, I wanted to ask you, our experience in the pandemic, I think, uh, certainly in uh, where, where I live in the UK, there was quite a lot of input from behavioral scientists um, about how, um, in, in a sense, some of the messages from from government were being received and how they were not being interpreted um, properly by by the public and by those who needed to hear the messages. Is, is that a discipline that that you feel we're integrating effectively at the moment into into these areas? I mean, I, I'm not expert in behavioral science uh, uh, in, in this particular context, but I think it's a good, quite important. You know, we had to bring psychologists, behavioral scientists to make sure that whatever technology that we develop is human-centric, citizen-centric, and people are listening and you know, what they're producing is what they want as well. And also it's, it's all about really changing the people's understanding about the purpose of the solutions, uh, building an appreciation of this technology and the benefits, and also changing the attitudes for using this technology as well. So that should be some sort of transformation. 
needs to happen, but in order to really absorb this technology within you know, the real context as well. So I, I feel like it's important to bring this kind of a more uh, interdisciplinary teams to uh, to a concept of like living lab, which I was talking about before, to make sure that whatever we build is really, we are building it together as Eileen uh, was Eileen was saying, that make sure that it's not really doing things for them. And we need to make sure that we consider citizen as our clients, go through a user requirement capture, co-create, co-develop, and make sure that the, whatever that we develop could be then used to be absorbed into their day-to-day -day life. Well, when you say that, that at the living lab, what does the, the word living imply in that title? Living lab, living lab means about really you are uh, developing something within the real context rather than the laboratory. So for okay. example, we, we tend to develop technologies within our laboratory and then hoping that people will use it. But so I think we need to replace that kind of mentality about the open solution. We need to go into the urban laboratory, work with the end users to really to define the shape and form of the technology, build it with them, co-create the ideas with them, try it out with them, get their feedback, refine it continuously with the community to make sure whatever you produce can have impact and at the same time have acceptance of the community as well. So it's a different way of developing technology, I think. You're listening to WeatherPod with Alan Thorpe and David Rogers. <clears throat> Raises a, a leading question, perhaps, and from what you've, the three of you have just said, you know, we're faced, the Secretary General of the United Nations has this early warning for all initiative, and coming from the UN, it seems to come from the top down rather than touching on all of the things we've talked about. If you could influence it, what would you be suggesting uh, could be done based on, on you know, your responses now? I mean, it seems that somehow we're still build it, they will, they will use it, whereas we really know that's not going to work. So how do we change that? I'll start with Irene, and if anybody wants to jump in on that. Well, um, my recommendation would be that we, we need to invest in the localization agenda. So we need to be able to appreciate that there are, there are capacities available in each country, in each region, in each community, but these capacities need to be built upon because you know uh, their coping capacities is at various levels their understanding and and perceptions you know of the different risks that they face this is all varied and so for us to ensure that we bring a marriage between from the global to the local first we need to be able to understand what is on the local before we begin infusing or integrating what is coming from uh, from the global. I believe uh, uh, that with the, the global, the, the early warning for all initiative will be successful, will be uh, uh, achieved if we start looking at it from the lens of those that we seek to be able to serve. And with that, then we can try working towards achieving that ring of protection from that level of angle than just looking at it from you know here i am coming we've diagnosed the issue and here is uh, is the challenge because while for example yes we are talking about the need for early warning 
different people have different needs for the now, you know, and an early warning need may be far fetched away from them until, you know, they face the challenge that actually requires them to be able to apply the early warning information. So I believe and, 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 and my, my recommendation would be around the spectrum of looking at the person, looking at the community, looking at the country that we would like to be able to support and see things from their perspective, see what is available, see what is missing, and how then can the global uh, uh, thinking, how then can the global initiatives fit into that puzzle? And I'll be, uh, 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 and I'll also share some of the reflections I've had internally uh, uh, within within Uganda, having the conversation around early warning and the early warning initiative, you know, the understanding of this component is actually detached from what is happening. Most of the people who are familiar with this early warning for all initiative are people who are working with international organizations. When you get to different, uh, 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 when you get to, you know, organizations, national organizations, it's news to them, you know, so we also have uh, the, the we, we need to challenge ourselves that how do we bring the conversation first to the people before we begin carrying what we are bringing with the conversation so that people are aware of what we are talking about and syncing it to what is happening in, in, in their environment. Through that, then we'll be able to achieve um, uh, the goal that we have for early warning for all. Otherwise, as it is, you know, we will have it hanging in the air and totally detached from what is happening on the ground. Paul? <clears throat> Irene, for me, really resonated for me when she talked about language. Empowerment, language, and engagement to communities. I, I, there's an example that came out when I went to a Warnings for All United Nations conference. And that particular question was asked to one Pacific island. And they said, birds. Because what the community looked to is what the behavior of the birds about preparing themselves for disasters. And when you unpack it, Alan, it was the MGO, the ENSO. That's what it's related to. So in other words, let's stop talking about MGO and ENSO and 70 millimeters of rainfall. Let's stop talking about birds. Let's talk to the language the community understands and can engage with. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say as well, from my experience with the ADCAR model, for example, it takes about seven different routes of communication for people to take action. There'd be something from government, radio, a newspaper, what your neighbor's doing, what your family's doing. There's about seven of them. So it's, so it's not just one route in com. It's a multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary approach and engagement with the community at heart. Empowerment so that they can take their action. And let's talk the language they talk, not what the language we talk. That's how I would take that forward. Thank you. I want to take this a bit further with... with with Terence also, but I want to interject one thing, and that is, you know, there's the Secretary General of the UN has said it will cost uh, 50 cents per person, so it's 31 billion, roughly 31 billion dollars, to provide early warning for all. And then the question is, where would you spend the money, really? I mean, it seems to me so far we would be, we should be spending the money at the community level. We should be building, you know, we or somewhere it's not coming from big international organizations it's coming at a level where it's very effective with the community so terence how how would you th what would your advice be in terms of how you you build a more effective system i mean you still need systems but how would you make it more effective 
So, so I'll come from the technical and stakeholder, professional stakeholders' point of view. So, so when you think about building a multi-hazard impact-based early warning system, you need to integrate so many different types of technologies like weather forecasting, hazard simulation, risk uh, information, impact analysis, risk communication, and, and so on. But from a difficult, sorry, from the technology point of view, it's not difficult that we have already implemented some of these uh, uh, concepts already. But however, there are many uh, dependent parts in the system. So any weakness in one of the components can affect the validity of the entire system and break down the community trust, for example, if, the, if we are not producing the kind of accurate results. So therefore, I believe challenges come from the uh, technical cap capabilities and the willingness of the relevant government organization for implementing this kind of new approach. And this approach improves, uh, kind of impose new responsibilities on the relevant organizations to make sure their simulation results and the data are reasonably accurate. And, re and also the risk information is up to date as well to make sure that your uh, kind of early warnings are kind of accurate enough. So stakeholders who do not have confidence in the accuracy of their simulation or their data can be reluctant to try, a, try out a multi-hazard impact-based early warning approach due to the fear of getting it wrong and uh, damaging their reputation and image as well. So that's what I feel in um, sort of low middle, in, in, sorry, low middle income countries. Perhaps this can be overcome by uh, building their uh, technical capacity and piloting and impact-based impact warning systems on a small scale and with the community to build their capacity and, and their confidence for rolling it out uh, at a national level. So I think maybe it starts slowly work with the uh, stakeholders to build their capacity and confidence is going to be crucial, I think. We talk a lot about <clears throat> multi-hazard impact-based warnings, and, and we've seen, particularly as Alan mentioned, the, the pandemic. I mean, we've still had health warning systems completely devoid, de um, develops completely separately from other hazards, and this proliferates in, in, in with many problems and we're really far away from this ideal of having a system which allows you to effectively provide information to people through common pathways that, that people are familiar with rather than having to reinvent uh, a communication system and reinvent uh, a, a whole production process <coughs> because we're, we're not able somehow to join up our approaches. So what, and this is really our last question, you know, what, what do we need to do to try and make this work as a, as a really a, a community-based all-hazards system that, that enables people to receive information in the simplest way possible, that convinces them, that, that has built into it the necessary steps that ensure trust that people say, yeah, I'm convinced. What, what, what is it that we're missing and what can we do to kind of build that system? Irene. That's, a, that's an easy question, David. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Alan. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think again, it speaks to what Paul um, mentioned earlier on the issue around building trust you know if we have a trustful relationship um, with the communities with the stakeholders with the governments and whoever is involved in this process 
then we have a higher chance of seeing a translation of this information into action. But also just beyond building the trust, there are different reasons why, you know, we are not seeing the action that we want to see from these warnings. It could be that, you know, information is not reaching to people. It could be that uh, people may not understand what needs to be done. And so while we have started with impact-based forecasting, it's still at a very, very small level. So this has to be scaled up that, you know, we are having it at scale. Currently, most of um, the projects that are working on impact-based forecasting are really very, are really very small compared to the coverage that we seek, we seek to have. So that is one, one of the uh, uh, the milestones that we have to to achieve to ensure that we quite have a, a, a scale up of the impact-based forecasting, both in terms of uh, capacity building, in terms of knowledge uh, uh, building and dissemination, in terms of the partnerships that are needed around this. But I would also look at it also broadly and coming from uh, um, uh, a strategy and policy framework that we need to see early warning, early action as an integral part of our day-to-day -day disaster risk management approaches. Currently, you know, it is just one tail of, of, of this whole uh, huge uh, uh, um, uh, animal that we are looking at. And it does not matter however much we invest on early warning and early action alone and do not invest in the general disaster preparedness, then we are, we, we are acting on a very weak foundation. So for us to be able to see the level of change, the level of action that we would like to see, we need to look at it in the whole framework of the continuum and be able to ensure that we are having anticipatory action as our default mode of operation. It is part of our policies, it is part of our strategies, it is part of our plans. And with that then, we hope that you'd also see the level of investment across the whole, uh, the whole framework. Otherwise, we will just keep running with small bits uh, uh, of, of, of investment and expecting lots of output out of, uh, out of this. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Ter Terence? Uh, yeah, so I, th I think the, this uh, early warning apps can't be an isolated app because sometimes, you know, if, you, if it's an isolated app, people will forget about it. You know, they might use it once a year, and then obviously when the disaster happens, they think, oh, I need to go to this app and start using it, but then completely forget the following year. So so that should be a way of uh, bringing the people back into this app by providing some other information. It could be about... Uh, some personal uh, personalized information that they, they might be interested could be educational maybe health tips maybe some offers that they might be interested in uh, daily uh, point of view so we need to think about really thinking about a specialized early warning system somehow we need to think about how do you integrate into their kind of a, a social media kind of applications as well as provide enriching that experience so that is more than hazard information it should bring interesting information for them so that they will continuously use it day by day. Thanks, Paul. Social vulnerability. How do we take those communities which are vulnerable? You look at the United States, the tornadoes. It just hits the wrong community. When you look at the New York City when they got flooded, it was somebody who was disabled. I couldn't get out. You know, there are so many examples in developed countries as well and developing countries about that social vulnerability. And if Virginia Murray, I'm going to mention Virginia Murray, was on the call, she would bat in on the table, don't forget health, because it's one of those quiet, evil things. If you're flooded and your house is flooded and your community is impacted, 
that impact from the health, mental health in particular, goes on for way beyond the disaster itself. So I think that focus and target focus on social vulnerability, I was also struck in the UK when we had the heat wave of 40 degrees. We pushed a warning out for heat and the advice is do not travel. If you're a nurse, you have to travel. So it's more about how we communicate and target that information and to protect those people are also protecting others to protect themselves. And I think that whole social science, behavioral science, engagement, social vulnerability, I think that's the trick. I think we should focus a lot on that because often it's the vulnerable that suffers from this. People who have got a car and can move around are, you know, as long as they get the information required to make that action, but it's the vulnerable and the social vulnerability, I think is something we need to focus on going forward. Thanks. Uh, I was um, interviewed recently myself about, about what did I view the future of warning systems to be, particularly for heat waves, but I generalize it to all warnings. And one of the things that strikes me that we, to sort of bring this all together, is that we have the technology, we have the penetration in countries of social media, of, of mobile applications, and we're at that point where we can create warning systems personalized for everybody. In other words, everyone can create their own warning system without having to share personal data with the world, but you can actually do your own self-assessment and you can then say, "This is these are the risks that I face and these are the things. So if we took heat waves <clears throat> as a as an ex- sort of simple example, you'd say, well, I've got certain pre-existing com- conditions and this app tells me basically that I'm going to be at risk above a certain temperature. This is the home I have. I can't cool it below this temperature. All, all of these things can be can be factored into a personalized warning system and certainly one hopes that within the a handful of years that we will actually provide people with that because the one thing that people will trust is themselves and that begins to, to puts the tools it puts the design into people's hands they feel part of it they're they're able then and they know that they're not sharing inf- I mean I was asked uh, in my comments I was asked about what about these big platforms he said well one of the problems is that you're sharing too much information and that's their problem and you 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 want to feel like this is your information and it's just between you and you know your phone on a limited basis it's not you share what you want not more than that and that's enough to be able to give you the information you need to make a better decision when you are faced with uh, a multiple set of hazards and cascading hazards and all the things that come with the world that we are we are living in, so I, I hope that's ultimately where we get to, and we'll rely on Terence to help us get there. I hope. <laughs> so, um, Alan, over to you for some last remarks. <clears throat> well, I, I think it's been a, a great and fascinating discussion, and I'm sure that we will follow up. Um, with future um, podcasts and other events that that build on what you've all said. Um, I just want to thank you for for taking part in this and and sharing your perspectives, which are surprisingly convergent, I think, across across your very different experiences. So, um, David, I I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for, for their contribution to this. I think it's been a really great discussion. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.
Well, that concludes this episode of The Weather Pod. We hope you've enjoyed it. Alan and I will be back next month. And in the meantime, please give us your feedback via email to support at gweforum.org. 